hymn that sang before the message. Listen to verse number four, or excuse me, five. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children never forsaketh. Listen to this phrase. His, that is God's, the loving purpose solely, exclusively, solely to preserve them pure and holy. Let me think about that one more time. His, God's, loving purpose solely is to preserve his children pure and holy. I'm going to ask you tonight, as we begin, what is your view of holiness as it relates to God? I don't think I, it's probably new to most of us here. We looked at it last week. God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Be holy like me. And last week we understood the concept that God by his spirit in Christ has made us holy. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We can say if, if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, if you have entered into the family of God, you are holy. You already are. Paul says in one of the epistles that Christ is made unto us holiness. You are holy. Today, period, full stop, end of story. And yet, at the same hand, God tells you be holy. The idea last week, as we understood, is that the holiness that has been imparted to us by the Holy Spirit, God says, bring out to every facet of your life. Be holy in every dimension of your life. As I have made you a new person, let that new holy person be seen, be felt in all the reaches of your life. Be holy. But my question, again, to go back to tonight is, how do you perceive holiness as it relates to God? Because how you think of God's relationship to you in holiness will be really significant. Let me give you an example. My mom told me once of in college studying the organ. And she studied the pipe organ for, I think it was only a semester. She can, she can correct me. I'll get a text after church tonight if I'm wrong about that. But... If my recollection is correct here, her organ lessons weren't very fun for her because she had a teacher that would sit there and when she was playing in her lesson and tap on the desk, to, on like the organ or whatever the thing was to keep time, and it would be like tap, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on, tap, tap, like she was dragging, she wasn't, she needed help. Now you can imagine the pressure of playing in a piano lesson or an organ lesson and you're doing your best to keep up and all you can feel like is tap, 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 tap. You're not quite doing enough and you're feeling like your, your wrists or your knuckles are continually getting wrapped. I wonder if that's how you feel like God feels in your pursuit of holiness. You're there trying your best. You're there working. I know I need to be holy. I need to be sanctified. I, I need to get victory over these areas spiritually. And there's just God right on the side of the piano, on the side of the keyboard, tap, tap, tapping. Come on, you're not doing enough. Come on, pick it up a little bit faster and keep time a little bit better. Is that your view of how God is? I ask because it's certainly not a new insight to me, but it is often the case that our view of God 
is influenced by our view of our parents. When we speak, as we will tonight, about God being a father to his children, we oftentimes connect who God might be like to what we experienced in our father, a father who is very driven and demanding and like that, tap, 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 tap. We are naturally going to begin perceiving of God like that. And on the other hand, a God who is, or a father, perhaps we may have had, who was very negligent, who is very permissive. Everything goes, it's all good. I'm just kind of stepping back and letting you be you. We might very well begin cultivating that view of God from the time we were young, that God as a father is going to be that same kind of negligent, that same kind of easygoing, just go along to get along. I come back to this point. What is your view of God when it comes to your holiness? And tonight, we go to the passage, I think, that teaches on this subject so wonderfully in Hebrews chapter 12. Here is what God says to us, that God is a father chastens us and notice what he says he does it for our profit verse 10 for our good that we might be partakers or share in his holiness God's direction his relationship toward us in his fatherly care for us is to make us sharers of his holiness. God, in other words, is committed to make you holy. It's his divine commitment. The title of the message tonight is simply Holiness, a Divine Commitment. Holiness, a Divine Commitment. And we'll look at this in three aspects. First, we'll look at the relationship that this invokes here in Hebrews chapter 12. Secondly, we'll look at the resources that God uses to bring about our holiness. And thirdly, we'll look at a proper response to this Father God who is committed to our holiness. Notice here first just a little bit of the context of Hebrews chapter 12. What is going on here in this section that Kelvin Todd read for us tonight? Well, there is clearly a predicament going on for these Hebrew believers. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book exactly. Different names have been put out as guesses. We don't know. Whoever the author was, was writing to a collection of Jewish Christians, people who had professed faith in Christ, had come to join a Christian community, and had received significant persecution and opposition from their own Jewish community. They were being forced to choose between a Christian community and between a Jewish community, uh, an ethnic, if you will, community. And so we see here that, that the author of Hebrews is encouraging them in that. Notice some of the things that they've been experiencing. Will you look with me at verse number 3? He says, For consider him, Jesus that endured such contradiction of sinners, such opposition by sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. In other words, what were they prone, what were they being tempted to do? To be wearied 
and to be discouraged, to give up in their own Christian life. Notice what he says in verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That's the idea here. The idea is you've been resisting. You have been faced with opposition, but it's not yet to the shedding of your blood. You haven't been brought to martyrdom. You have not been killed for your faith. Yes, there's been opposition, but look, unlike Christ, you have still have life. You are still holding on to that gift that God has given you. Now go back to chapter 10 for just a minute. Turn back a couple pages and notice Hebrews chapter 10. In verse number 32, the author says, But call to remembrance. Remember the former days in which after you were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. You had great difficulty, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions. You were the focus of the world around you. They, they were looking at all your trouble, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Whether you were under the spotlight of a hostile world, or whether you were just companions of those that were being mocked and and opposed by a hostile world. This was your affliction. Now look at verse 34. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, in my imprisonment, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. In other words, what did they experience? They'd experienced reproach, they'd experienced opposition and hostility, and they'd even experienced the robbing of their material possessions. Their material possessions clearly here had been, as he said, spoiled. These are people under pressure, under difficulty, under trial and trouble. And so now in Hebrews chapter 12, after bringing these people through Hebrews chapter 11, which is a testimony to their faith, but also to what? Their suffering. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of those who had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And he says, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. He's saying, do you have it hard? Yeah, you do. Do you have it harder than these folks? No, you don't. They endured by faith. And then he says in chapter 12 and verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. We've talked about this. This is not witnesses, I believe, who see things. They're not looking down over the portals of heaven, peering into our life. They're watching us. No. The idea of witnesses here is people who are saying something. They're testifying something to us. Their life is an example to us. Just like they endure difficulty and they held on to it, their, their, their faith. He is saying, in the same way they're testifying to you, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as the supreme example of enduring affliction and difficulty and trouble and resistance from sinners, and yet standing firm in the commitment to God's calling. For his life. This is the idea. This is where we're driving to. And notice then what he says in verse 5. And ye have forgotten 
the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And now he's going to quote Proverbs 3. My son, despise not thou the chastening, the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, he disciplines, and scourgeth. Again, a kind of discipline. Every son whom he receiveth. Every single child that God has, the author of Hebrews says, is discipline. If ye endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. In other words, notice what he's saying. Are you under difficulty right now? Are you under persecution? Are you under hostility and oppression? Well, good. That means you're a child. Because God disciplines every child that he welcomes into his family. What son is he, he says, whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then, he says, are ye bastards, literally illegitimate children. You're not sons. You're not truly of God. You are illegitimate. Now, he's taking their expectations of difficulty and challenge and trouble and saying, wait a second, do you see how this is a good thing? Do you see how this is something that is, that is showing to you that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he's seeking the best for you? This is evidence of the fatherly relationship you have right now with God. Now go down to verse 10. He says, he, notice verse 10, for they verily, he's talking about human fathers, we'll get back to this, for a few days chastened us, disciplined us after their own pleasure, based on what they thought was good. But he, but God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Do you see again here the purpose of God for all of the difficulty that he brings into your life? Why does God discipline you? Why does God discipline me? That we might be made partakers, literally share in his holiness. Now, I just want to point out that Scripture teaches this same thing much more broadly. 1 John 3 speaks of the fact that we are, should be called the sons of God. He says, in fact, now are we the sons of God in verse 2. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know what we shall be eternally. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What is this? God's commitment to make us like him. We are sons. We have the DNA of God that has been implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. What are we? We are holy. The DNA of God is in us. And God says, one day, eternally, you will look like me. You will be like me. Listen to Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. What was that good work that God begins in every Christian? implanting his DNA in you, making you his child. If he has begun a good work in you, I am confident, Paul says, that he will what? That he will perform it, complete it, perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will. If he started something good in you, he's going to bring it to its conclusion. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is Paul saying, 
uh, um, praying that the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. What was Paul's confidence in? He was in it was in the faithfulness of God. That if God starts something, does God do half works? It's like if you were to come upon uh, a piece of art. I, as a music major, a, a piece that I appreciated so much was Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Have you ever heard Schubert's Unfinished Symphony? It was a, a, it was a symphony that there were only, I think, two movements to. He didn't get around to finishing the rest of it before he died. Mozart's Requiem is another example. Mozart got through a requiem only part way, and it's had to be finished by other people after him. The point that scripture is making is God's not an unfinished artist. He has no unfinished pieces of art. All of his work in us, all of his sculpting, all of his painting of us is to be completed because God is faithful. One other example, Titus 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You see, that's a call to holiness. It is. And then listen to this. Speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Who's the actor in that situation? Jesus. That he might purify to himself a peculiar or literally a special people zealous of good works. Let's just allow the Bible to speak to us here again very clearly. If you are the child of God, he has committed himself unambiguously to make you holy. His ultimate purpose is to make you a partaker, a sharer of his holiness eternally. Now let's keep on diving into this passage here by looking secondly at the resources that he uses to make you holy. Notice verse 10 again. He is comparing us to our earthly fathers. And in fact, if you go back to verse 9, he says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh. That's just saying earthly, human dads, which corrected us. Now, did you have a dad that corrected you? For most of us, if we had an earthly father, the answer is, yeah, dad disciplined us. Dad corrected us. He's just uh, giving us an example of something that we can connect to. We had earthly dads, and they corrected us, and we gave them reverence. You might not have given your dad reverence behind his back, but I suspect that most of us gave dad a little reverence to his face because dad had the ability to correct us. This is the simple point he's making. We showed reverence to our earthly dads who were giving us correction. Now listen to this. Shall we not much rather, even more so, be in subjection, be submitting ourselves unto the father of spirits and live? And now he goes on to this comparison in verse 10. For they verily for a few days chastened us, disciplined us after their own pleasure. Now what's he saying here? The idea here is this. The best earthly dad can only discipline kids based on what he perceives as being best. But every one of us had a fallible earthly dad. 
the best of dads among us get things wrong. We are deceived. We perceive things wrongly. And if you can imagine all the ways in which we can discipline our own children based on misunderstanding or even mispriorities, things that we shouldn't be holding up as a priority, and yet we do when we discipline to get to that ideal, and God might be saying, where's your priority? That's not my priority. What he's saying is the best of earthly dads aren't perfect dads. They only can do based on their own perception. But notice what he says of God. But what about God? But he, for profit. Notice the word our there is in italics. Literally, it's just saying, but he for good. How does God discipline? For good. For our profit. And what is that profit? What is for our good that God is intensely focused on? That we might be partakers of his holiness. Earthly fathers with their misperceptions in their discipline. God with his perfect understanding of what is good for us and that is our holiness now notice here then what he's saying there is an all-wise God a perfectly omniscient God who knows what is good for you and is committed to bringing it about now is that a comfort to you is that a comfort to you that it changes the way you think and the way you feel about what you're going through right now? That there is a God who is committed to what is good for you. You see, one way that we can get out of this again is if we allow our, our ideas of our earthly father to corrupt our notion, our vision of our heavenly father. If we are doubting the goodness of God, if we are doubting the sufficiency, the wisdom of God to bring about what is best for us, we're not going to be able to come into this passage and embrace it for ourselves. And yet when we have the idea, when we are able to trust what Scripture tells us, that he is unambiguously given to our profit, to our good, and he knows exactly how to bring it about. It should be a great comfort to us. His, the loving purpose, solely to preserve them, as that hymn says, pure and holy. Now, do you think the, the, these people who were reading this for the first time would have had a hard time with that? Do you think they would have struggled to come into the truth that was being portrayed here? Put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. What did God's discipline look like for them? What did God's chastening look like for them? Ask yourself, at whose hands that chastening was? It was people robbing them. It was people who were persecuting them, who were opposing them. In other words, I wonder if sometimes we think, okay, well, I got sick. Maybe that's God's discipline. Maybe that's God's chastening of me. Did I do something wrong? Is there something that I need to get cleared up? We, we look at kind of impersonal events as being God's chastening or God's discipline. Do you ever do this? Do you ever see someone treating you unambiguously, wickedly at work and say, well, there's God's discipline? Do you ever stop for a moment when your spouse is irritating you or frustrating you with some fleshliness, some, some area of their own weakness or their own failing, and you bow before God and say, okay, God, here's some of your discipline again. When your children are frustrating you, you know and once again, okay, God, this is your discipline 
I'm willing to come under your chastening right now. You see, who was doing the chastening? On the one hand, who was doing the chastening were wicked people who were out to persecute these Christians. And they could either look at them and say, okay, well, God, where are you in this? How come the wicked are prospering over us? How come we're being oppressed? We're being afflicted by these wicked people. God, get them! And God says, don't you understand that I'm disciplining you through them? I'm training you. I'm chastening you through them. A great example of this, of course, in the Old Testament is Joseph, a man who received the most hostile, malicious treatment from his own flesh and blood, his own brothers, selling him into slavery. And in Genesis chapter 50, after his father has died, his brothers come to him now so worried about him him, uh, taking revenge on them. And they fall down before him and they weep. And notice what he says, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. Do you know two things can be true at the same time? That someone is intending to bring harm upon you, perhaps for the sake of your Christian testimony, and at the exact same time, God means it for good? Both those things can be true. Your spouse can be treating you wrongly and even maliciously, and God is intending it for good. It is his loving purpose solely to preserve you pure and holy. There can be whatever crisis that you're facing at work, in your personal relationships, in your neighborhood, or in your school that is causing you grief and pain, and it is legitimate because people are mistreating you and they are doing wrong by you. And God oversees it and says, but don't you understand? I am your father, and I am superintending this for good. How at the same time could the early apostles speak in the book of Acts and say to the people of of Jerusalem that you have by your wicked hands taken and slain the, the prince of glory. You, by your wickedness, have killed Jesus. And at the same time, they can say, but it was God who delivered him up for all of you. How? Because it is God's purposes that are not defeated by man's wickedness, by man's malice, by man's evil. The same God who superintends our lives is the one who brings about all things for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. So you see, in other words, the certainty that he is bringing about here is that there is an all-wise God who knows entirely what is good and what is best. And at the same time, there is an all-powerful God who superintends even those who intend you malice, who intend you evil, who intend to harm you. He is powerful over all that to make it part of his to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that do for you when you embrace the fact that the Father in heaven that you have has the resources of being all wise to know exactly what is good and what you need and is all powerful to bring about even the wickedness of those around you to accomplish his purpose? It means that whatever pain you are experiencing in life today is being governed by a God who is all-wise and 
all-powerful. And it means that that pain has a purpose that is attached to it that is not random, that is not at a simple coincidence of the universe that we can't quite understand and therefore we give in to anxiety or fear or doubt. You know, it's that season of year, as, as I reflect on it, in January that you're still probably in the middle of your New Year's resolutions. Do you know, I looked this up, do you know what the number one New Year's resolution is that a study found? What do you think the one, number one New Year's resolution of Americans is? Not lose weight, though that was up there. Exercise, number one. Number one resolution of Americans is exercise. Do you know I saw something pretty funny? Do you know I saw, I, I saw something that said that 50% of new gym memberships are canceled by the end of January, 50%. I saw that 70%, I think it was, of new yoga memberships are canceled by the end of February. Now, that's a lot of people who have a purpose, have an intention to exercise, to improve their physical health and fitness. And at a certain point, it's the breaking point. In fact, one study did this. I thought this was fascinating. They, they, they calculated it together to see when a rise in fast food trips coincided with a decrease in gym memberships. That's a pretty good indicator, right? When does the fast food trips go up and when does the gym membership? I give up. My New Year's resolution is done. I'm going to McDonald's. That was great. But what, what's the point I'm making? It's this. Why do we find exercise so difficult? Because I wonder if how often we see the pain. The pain is right in our face. But we don't see the ultimate purpose. We don't see the ultimate goal at the end. Remember this when I was in, in school. I, I was trying out for my school's basketball team in college. And this was a Division I basketball team with a very serious approach. And we had a practice that the coaches didn't come to. And there weren't any basketballs in. It was the hardest workout of my entire life. It was entirely conditioning. And after all these conditioning drills we did, the strength and conditioning coach or whoever the workout coach was got all these Division I basketball players and, and me, who was not a Division I basketball player, on the line, and we just ran. We either had five, six, or seven seconds to get down the court. And five seconds was a sprint. And seven seconds was a really fast run. And we'd get down to the end, and then he would make us run in place or skip or do something like that so we had to keep our legs moving and he'd blow the whistle and he'd run back up to the line and he'd blow the whistle fan and we'd have to just bust it down, whatever it was, keep on doing that. I cannot even tell you for how many times we did that. I thought we were going to die. Someday I'll tell you about the reason that I was the cause for the team having to do three extra wind sprints. I was not a popular person. I can tell you the, ca the captain turned to me and started like yelling. It was really, really embarrassing at the time. But nonetheless, what was the point of doing those workouts? I would never have signed up for doing that workout. This is the, probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. Why would I have signed up for that? Why would these guys have signed up for it? Because they had a purpose. They knew what it was intended for. They knew there was going to be a basketball game at the second half with one minute left when their lungs were going to be screaming and their legs were going to be giving out and they needed to be in better shape than the other team. So they were willing to push themselves through agony. And you see... 
God is trying to convince us of the same thing. He is more knowledgeable than the best strength and conditioning coach. And he has a more loving and pure purpose to bring about our good, our holiness, our purity of life and sanctification of relationship with him in order to bring that to pass. And so he says what? Trust me. I'm committed to your holiness. So trust me. You see, notice what he's saying here. Notice the commands that come out here in chapter number 12. We notice first in verse 5, and ye have for, in verse 5 of chapter 12, he says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Despise, don't despise his discipline. Now this word despise literally means don't think lightly of it. In other words, if you're going through difficulty and challenge right now in your life, don't chalk it up to random chance. Don't chalk it up to a coincidence that you don't dwell on. What he's saying is, when you receive even the opposition of hostile, malicious actors in your life, look up and say, God, what are you trying to do here? I know you're bringing about my holiness, so make it happen. Make it happen. Don't despise it. He's not, thinking, he's not talking about thinking hostily about it. He's saying, don't think lightly about it. Don't just brush it off your shoulder and say, no big deal, I'll just get through it. No. God's doing something. My mom likes to remind us, look at the, for the fingerprints of God in every situation. Look for his activity. Notice what he says next. Not only despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. What's the idea here? Don't become discouraged. Don't let your hands hang low and say God's doing this because he doesn't love me. God's doing this because he's like just rapping on the side of the piano trying to say, go, 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 go. No. It's a loving purpose. Notice what he says in verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. It's not fun. He's not telling you it's fun. But what he is telling you is this. I'm in control and I know what I'm doing. And I intend to make you holy. So therefore, don't be discouraged. Notice what he says then in verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Look around for the people in our body who are burdened, who are, being, who are under suffering, who are under challenge right now, and, and pick them up. Be an encourager. Say, God's got you. God knows what he's doing. God's making you holy through this. That's part of our life together as a church. But then notice what he says in verse 9 as well. Here's another command. This is a rhetorical question. He says, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? What's he saying? First, he's saying, don't think lightly of God's discipline. Secondly, don't become discouraged by God's discipline. And thirdly, above all, don't rebel against it. Don't rebel against the difficulty that's in your life right now. Be in subjection under it. Be willing to bear up under it. Submit, show respect, show reverence to your father who knows what he's doing and has all power to bring it about. Don't think lightly. Don't become discouraged. Don't rebel against God's discipline. Remember that his loving purpose is to preserve you pure and holy. You see, friends, to my mind, 
this is such an incredible comfort. It's such an incredible comfort to know that God's call to holiness in your life is not something any different than what he's already committed to doing you. This morning we preached a very sobering message on Mark chapter 9. Jesus' call, his radical call to us to say, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to have only one hand and go to life than have two hands and go to hell. It's a sobering message. It's a call to all of us to be radically decisive in our approach to sin. And sometimes that can shake our foundations and say, God, I'm not good enough. God, I can't do a good enough job. God, are you putting a burden in front of me that I can't carry? And then we come to Hebrews chapter 12, and we hear God saying to us, I'm not calling you to do anything in your life that I already haven't committed to do. I am an all-wise, all-powerful Father who has committed to bring about the holiness that I have already implanted in you. What is holiness? Holiness, as we saw last week, is being delivered from the deformity of our own fleshly desires. But we should see tonight that holiness also is a divine commitment from our loving Father. May we walk in that this week.